Chapter Nine of Companionable Books by Henry Van Dyke. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Nine, Walton, a quaint comrade by quiet streams. In April, sixteen fifty-three, Oliver Cromwell, after much bloodshed and amid great confusion, violently dissolved the Rump Parliament. In May of the same year, Isaac Walton published *The Complete Angler*, or the contemplative man's recreation twas a strange contrast between the tranquil book and the tempestuous time but that the contrast was not displeasing may be inferred from the fact that five editions were issued during the author's life which ended in sixteen eighty three at the house of his son-in-law in the cathedral close at winchester walton being then in his ninety-first year and at peace with god and man doubtless one of the reasons why those early editions especially the first the second and the fifth in which walton's friend charles cotton added his instructions how to angle for a trout or grayling in a clear stream are now become so rare and costly is because they were carried about by honest anglers of the seventeenth century in their coat pockets or in their wallets a practice whereby the body of a book is soon worn out though its soul be immortal that this last is true of walton's angler seems proven by its continual reappearance the hundredth edition called after the rivers lee and dove which walton loved was brought out in eighteen eighty eight by the genial fisherman and bibliophile r b marston of the london fishing gazette among the other english editions i like john major's second eighteen twenty four and sir john hawkins reissued by bagster eighteen o eight and pickering's richly illustrated two volumes edited by sir harris nicholas eighteen sixty eight there is a reprint by the same publisher and a diamond from the oxford university press small enough to go comfortably into a vest pocket with your watch or your pipe i must speak also of the admirable introductions to the angler written in these later years by james russell lowell andrew lang and richard de gallienne and of the great American edition made by the Reverend Dr. George W. Buthine in 1847, a work in which the learning, wit, and sympathy of the editor illuminate the pages. This edition is already hard to find, but no collector of angling books would willingly go without it. The gentle reader has a wide choice, then, of the form in which he will take his Walton, something rare and richly adorned for the library, or something small and plain for the pocket or the creel, but in what shape soever he may choose to read the book, if he be not a severe, sour-complexioned man, he will find it good company. There is a most propitiating paragraph in the address at the beginning of the first edition, explaining why he has introduced some innocent, harmless mirth into his work, Walton writes, I am the willinger to justify this innocent mirth, because the whole discourse is a kind of picture of my own disposition, at least of my disposition in such days and times as I allow myself, when honest, Nat and R.R., and I go fishing together. This, indeed, is one of the great attractions of the book, that it so naturally and simply shows the author. I know of no other in which this quality of self-revelation, without pretense or apology, is as modest and engaging, unless it be the essays of Charles Lamb, or those of Monsieur de Montaigne. We feel well acquainted with Walton when we have read The Angler, and perhaps have added to our reading his only other volume, a series of brief lives of certain excellent and beloved men of his time, wherein he not only portrays their characters, but further discloses his own. They were men of note in their day, 
Sir Henry Wotton, Ambassador to Venice, Dr. John Dunn, Dean of St. Paul's, Richard Hooker, famous theologian, George Herbert, sacred poet, Bishop Sanderson, eminent churchman. With most of these, and with other men of like standing, Walton was in friendship. The company he kept indicates his quality. Whatever his occupation or his means, he was certainly a gentleman and a scholar, as well as a good judge of fishing. Of the actual events of his life, despite diligent research, little is known, and all to his credit. Perhaps there were no events of public importance or interest. He came as near as possible to the fortunate estate of the nation which has a good repute but no history. He was born in the town of Stafford, August ninth, 1593. Of his schooling he speaks with becoming modesty, and it must have been brief, for at the age of sixteen or seventeen he was an apprentice in London. Whether he was a linen draper or an ironmonger is a matter of dispute. Perhaps he was first one and then the other. His first shop, in the Royal Burse, Cornhill, was about seven and a half feet long by five wide. But he must have done a good business in those narrow quarters, for in 1624 he had a better place on Fleet Street, and from 1628 to 1644 he was a resident of the parish of St. Dunstan's, having a comfortable dwelling, and probably his shop, in Chancery Lane, about the seventh house on the left-hand side. He served twice on the grand jury, and was elected a vestryman of St. Dunstan's twice. It was during his residence here that he lost his first wife, Rachel Floud, and the seven children whom she had borne to him. In 1644, finding the city dangerous for honest men, on account of the civil strife and disorder, he retired from London, and probably from business, and lived in the country, sometimes at Stafford, according to Anthony Wood, the antiquary, but mostly in the families of the eminent clergymen of England, of whom he was much beloved. This life gave him large opportunity for his favorite avocation of fishing, and widened the circle of his friendships, for wherever he came as a guest he was cherished as a friend. I make no doubt that the love of angling, to which innocent recreation he was attached by a temperate and enduring passion, was either the occasion or the promoter of many of these intimacies. For it has often been observed that this sport inclines those that practice it to friendliness, and there are no closer or more lasting companionships than such as are formed beside flowing streams by men who study to be quiet and go a-fishing. After his second marriage, about 1646, to Anne Ken, half-sister of the Bishop Thomas Ken, author of the well-known hymns, Awake, My Soul, and With the Sun, and All Praise to Thee, My God, This Night, Walton went to live for some years at Clerkenwell, while he was there, the book for which he had long been preparing, The Complete Angler, was published, and gave him his sure place in English literature, and in the heart of an innumerable company of readers. Never was there better illustration of fisherman's luck than the success of Walton's book. He set out to make a little discourse of fish and fishing, a pleasant curiosity, he calls it, full of useful information concerning the history and practice of the gentle art, and as the author modestly claims on his title-page, not unworthy the perusal of most anglers. Instead of this he produced an imperishable classic, which has been read with delight by thousands who have never wet a line. It was as if a man went forth to angle for smelts and caught a lordly salmon. As a manual of practical instruction the book is long since out of date. The kind of rod which Walton describes is too cumbersome for the modern angler, who catches his trout with a split bamboo, weighing no more than four or five ounces, and a thin waterproofed line of silk, 
beside which Father Isaac's favorite line twisted of seven horsehairs would look like a bedcord. Most of his recipes for captivating baits and lures, and hints about oil or camphor, with which they may be made infallibly attractive to reluctant fish, are now more curious than valuable. They seem like ancient superstitions, although this very summer I had recommended to me a secret magic ointment, one drop of which, on a salmon fly, would, supposedly, render it irresistible. Yes, reader, I did try it, but the actual effect, owing to various incalculable circumstances, could not be verified. The salmon took the anointed fly sometimes, but at other times they took the unanointed, and so I could not make affidavit that it was the oil that allured them. It may have been some tickling in the brain, some dim memory of the time when they were a little par, living in fresh water for the first eighteen months and feeding mainly on floating insects that made them wish to rise again. But to return to my subject, the angler of today who wishes to understand the techniques of modern fishing gear will go to such books as H. B. Wells's Fly Rods and Fly Tackle, or to Dr. George Holden's The Idol of the Split Bamboo. This very year two volumes have been published, each of which in its way goes far beyond Walton. Mr. William Radcliffe's Fishing from the Earliest Times, which will undoubtedly take its place as a standard history of the ancient craft of fish-catching, and Mr. Edward R. Hewitt's Secrets of the Salmon, a brilliant and suggestive piece of work full of acute scientific observation and successful experiment. These belong to what de Quincey called the literature of knowledge but the angler belongs to the literature of power, that which has a quickening and inspiring influence upon the spirit, and here it is unsurpassed, I may even say unrivaled, by any book ever written about any sport. Charles Lamb wrote to Coleridge, commending it to his perusal. It might sweeten a man's temper at any time to read The Complete Angler. The unfailing charm of the book lives in its delicately clear descriptions of the country and of rural life, in its quaint pastoral scenes, like the interview with the milkmaid and her mother, and the convocation of gypsies under the hedge, and in its sincerely happy incitements to patience, cheerfulness, a contented spirit, and a tranquil mind. In its first form, the book opened with a dialogue between Piscator and Viator, but this later was revised to a three-sided conversation in which Venator, a hunter, and Auseps, a falconer, take the place of Viator, and try valiantly to uphold the merits of their respective sports as superior to angling. Of course, Piscator easily gets the best of them. Authors always have the power to reserve victory for their favorites. And Auseps goes off stage, vanquished, while Venator remains as a convert and willing disciple to follow his master by quiet streams and drink in his pleasant and profitable discourse. As a dialogue, it is not very convincing. It lacks salt and pepper. Venator is too easily a convert. He makes two or three rather neat repartees, but in general he seems to have no mind of his own. But as a monologue it is very agreeable, being written in a sincere, colloquial, unaffected, yet not undignified manner, with a plenty of digressions. And these, like the bypaths on a journey, are the pleasantest parts of all. Piscator's talk appears easy, unconstrained, rambling, yet always sure-footed, like the walk of one who has wandered by the little river so long that he can move forward safely without watching every step, finding his footing by a kind of instinct where his eyes follow the water and the rising fish. But we must not imagine that such a style as this, fluent as it seems, and easy to read as it is for any, with an ear for music, either comes by nature or is attained without effort. 
Walton speaks somewhere of his artless pencil, but this is true only in the sense that he makes us forget the processes of his art in the simplicity of its results. He was, in fact, very nice in his selection and ordering of words. He wrote and rewrote his simplest sentences and revised his work in each of the five earlier editions, except possibly the fourth. Take, for example, the bit which I have already quoted from the Address to the Reader in the first edition and compare it with the corresponding passage in the fifth edition. I am the willinger to justify the pleasant part of it because, though it is known I can be serious at reasonable times, yet the whole discourse is, or rather was, a picture of my own disposition, especially in such days and times as I have laid aside business and gone a-fishing with honest Nat and R. Rowe. But they are gone, and with them most of my pleasant hours, even as a shadow that passeth away and returns not. All the phrases in italics are either altered or added. He cites Montaigne's opinion of cats, a familiar judgment expressed with lightness, and in the first edition winds up his quotation with the sentence, To this purpose speaks Montaigne concerning cats. In the fifth edition, this is humorously improved to, Thus freely speaks Montaigne concerning cats, as if it were something noteworthy to take a liberty with this petted animal. The beautiful description of the song of the nightingale and of the lark, and the fine passage beginning, Every misery that I miss is a new mercy, are jewels that Walton added in revision. In the first edition he gravely tells how the salmon will force themselves over the tops of weirs and hedges or stops in the water by taking their tails into their mouths and leaping over those places even to a height beyond common belief. But upon reflection this fish story seems to him dubious, and so in the later edition you find the mouth-and-tail legend in a poetical quotation to which Walton cautiously adds, this Michael Drayton tells you of this leap or somersault of the salmon. It would be easy to continue these illustrations of Walton's care in revising his work through successive editions. Indeed, a long article, or even a little book, might be made upon the subject, and if I had the time I should like to do it. Another theme would well repay study, and that is the influence of the King James Version of the Bible upon his style and thought. That wonderful example of pure, strong, and stately English prose was first printed and published when Walton was eighteen years old, about the time he came to London as an apprentice. Yet to such good purpose did he read and study it that his two books, The Angler and The Lives, are full of apt quotations from it, and almost every page shows the exemplary effect of its admirable diction. Indeed, it has often seemed to me that his fine description of the style of the prophet Amos, in the first chapter of The Angler, reveals something of the manner in which Walton himself desired to write, and in this desire he was not altogether unsuccessful. How clearly the man shines through his book! An honest, kindly man, not ashamed of his trade, nor of his amusements, nor of his inmost faith. A man contented with his modest place in the world, and never doubting that it was a good world, or that God made it. A firm man, not without his settled convictions, and strong aversions, yet content that every reader should enjoy his own opinion, a liberal-mannered man, enjoying the music of birds and the merry songs and glees, grateful for good food and barley-wine, the good liquor that our honest forefathers did use to drink of, and a fragrant pipe afterwards, sitting down to meet not only with the eminent clergymen of England, but also, as his master did, with publicans and sinners, and counting among his friends such dignitaries as Dr. John Hales, Bishop King, and Sir Henry Wotton, and such lively and vigorous persons as Ben Johnson, Carey, and Charles Cotton. 
a loyal steadfast man not given to change anxiety of mind or vain complaining but holding to the day's duty and the day's reward of joy as god sent them to him and bearing the day's grief with fortitude thus he worked and read and angled quietly through the stormy years of the civil war and the commonwealth wishing that men would beat their swords into fish-hooks and cast their leaden bullets into sinkers and study peace and the divine will End of chapter 9